It's my great joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Exodus chapter 33. We're going to look at chapter 33 together this morning, and we're, I'm going to summarize chapter 34 for you as we continue this study through Exodus. Remember that Exodus contains these powerful images, these powerful pictures that God uses to explain to us how He interacts with His people. He is showing us who He is, what He is like, and how we should respond to Him. Now, all of these pictures don't just simply stop where they are. They point beyond themselves. And so we see a powerful picture in the very beginning of an ark in the water where someone is rescued, but it's just one man, this baby who grows up, and God raises him up to be a mediator between His people and Himself and And there's a burning bush and the voice of God coming from it. There's parting waters and the people crossing out to the other side. God redeeming them and them singing, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. This people is led to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And God comes and tells them, I am establishing my relationship with you. And He gives them His ten words and explains them the covenant obligations. And then there is the awful image of that same people making a golden calf and declaring this is a representative of the gods who got us out of Egypt. And this morning, this people is going to be commanded to leave Mount Sinai. And that's where we pick up together. I'm just going to simply read the last couple of verses of Exodus chapter 34 and then pray for God's mercy as we study His perfect and precious Word together. And I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the sovereign Word of our holy God. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 34. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to be face to face as you have summoned us to gather as your people and declare that our hope is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, and we do so today. We are a resurrection people. It is the resurrection of Christ that has birthed this congregation, that brings us together. And Lord, we pray that today, that we would magnify you. That, Lord, we would see your glory and your mercy in such a way that it would be obvious to those around us that we have been with you. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. What do you need to be joyful? What do you need for your life to have a sense of meaning and purpose? What do you need to have a sense of contentment? 
for your life to have a sense that you are living your life to the full. Now, there are all kinds of ways of things that pop in our mind when we hear questions like that. And most of the things that pop in our mind are not inherently bad things. Most are good things. We think about what do I need to have a sense of purpose and fullness of life? What, what do I need to be content? We think of relationships and we certainly need relationships. And sometimes we think of resources like, like money and we certainly need resources to be able to survive. That's not a bad thing for us to understand that we need. We think about success and achievement and uh, achieving certain goals in our lives and None of those things are inherently wrong, but none of those things can bear the weight of being ultimate. None of those things can bear the weight of being your foundation. What your foundation is shapes the way you interact with all of those important things, and it makes sure you interact with them rightly so those Good things are good for you. But understand this. There are no relationships that are going to bring you contentment and joy. There is no amount of money that's going to bring you a sense of purpose in life. There is no success or achievement that's going to to make your life be full. Those things are not meant to bear that weight. Our text this morning makes this truth absolutely clear. Moses was on, he was atop the mountain and he had been receiving the, uh, the, the tablets of commandments and the instructions that God was giving as you looked at in chapter 32 with Josh Crawford last week. And while he was on the top of the mount, speaking with the Lord, Yahweh, the, the great I am, and he was gone a good period of time. The people at the bottom were at work breaking the very first commandment. You should have no other gods before me. Moses had been gone. He was the mediator. He was the go-between. And when he's gone for a certain period of time, people look around and say, we cannot go this alone. We have to have a mediator which is the right instinct, but they have the one that God has given. And God has shown Himself mighty and strong and powerful. And so they immediately decide that, that we need to make one. And, and the, the, the whole telling of the story is full of irony. Because the way they plundered the Egyptians on the way out, and the Egyptians said, here, here, here's our stuff. And, and they were to take that gold and that silver and that bronze that they got from the Egyptians, and that was going to be a part of constructing the tabernacle itself. Now they, they say, let's take that jewelry, let's take that gold, and let's bring it together so we can make a mediator. So that we can make a God to worship. And so what they make is a, is a golden calf. And I, I so love Aaron as he, he, he's reacting to Moses' indignation about what has happened. Yeah, because Aaron says, uh, well, uh, we, we just put all that gold in there. And, and he says in chapter 32, verse 24, out came this calf. 
I have, an, I have an experience in my home almost exactly like that. Now, it is one of my sons, but it is not the one who is here today, because everybody tries to figure out who it was. But one of my sons wet his bed at night when he was older and shouldn't be the case. And so I go up there in the morning to gently wake him up as a loving father does. And he's stark naked in the bed. I'm like, oh my word. And I look under his bed and balled up under his bed are wet underwear. So I wake him up and I say, what happened? Why are you naked? Why are your underwear under the bed? He said, they must have jumped off of me. (laughs) I didn't buy that. That's the way Moses had to feel as Aaron says, and this thing came out, this golden calf. You see, it's not an accident that they made a calf. It didn't just happen. It didn't come out. You see, calves were often used to represent God in ancient Near Eastern culture. In fact, there are all kinds of gods where at least a part of calf features are part of them. There's Apis and Isis and, and, and Hathor and, and uh, calves were a part of Baal worship and, and on and on. So what this represents is, okay, Moses is gone. That thing didn't work out. He's been gone about four, he's too long. He's probably dead up there. And so we've got to have something to replace what he was bringing us. Okay, let's just go with the gods from the surrounding culture. Give us a God like the other gods so our God can appease the other gods. Give us what is like the world around us. 32 verse 8 is haunting. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, they say about the making of the calf. God judges this covenant rebellion. And in chapter 3, Moses is back on Mount Sinai. And what I want us to see in the first six verses is this. What we think we need. Often what we think we need, beginning in... uh, Chapter 33, verse 1. God makes a fascinating offer here to the people. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, you immediately notice here, he doesn't say, my people, in this reference. There is a distance that has been established by the rebellion of the people. And God is saying, the intimacy that I gave you by dwelling among you and commanding you to build a tabernacle so I can do so, you don't need to be thinking about that right now. Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to you and your offspring I will give it. Verse 2. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 3, go to a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you see what God's saying? The the promises that I made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
the promise that I made, I'm going to fulfill that promise. In fact, I'm going to send an angel before you. I will put you in the promised land, and I will make you successful. You will have a guardian angel that will lead you there. You will get to the promised land, and when you're there, you're going to have all these enemies, but I'm going to make you successful. Isn't that great? God, keeping His promise, taking this people to the land, sending an angel to be involved in doing it, and making them successful. But, the second part of verse 3, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people, stubborn, obstinate. The word is used for oxen that, that, that are in a uh, thing to, to plow a field, and one of them just stops and digs his feet in and stiff-necked. He doesn't want to move. And the same child I told you about earlier was a child when we started trying to feed that child regular food. He would close his mouth and throw his neck back. And I've got ways I got by that, but that's another story for another day. I would take great delight in finishing his food, helping him finish his food. I'd say, Judy, he ate it all. But he would be stiff-necked. you know what that means for a child? No, I just won't do it. That's what this people is like, it says. In other words, he says, because of your rebellion, I will take you to the promised land, I will make you successful, but I will not tabernacle with you. I will not dwell with you. I will not be there in the sense of putting my house in your neighborhood. I will not be directly in your midst. In other words, forget about the tabernacle. Remember the purpose of the tabernacle, Exodus 25, 8? That I may dwell in their midst. Now you may say, but I mean, isn't God everywhere? If you've read some theology books, you might say, but God is omnipresent. What do you mean He won't be there? God is everywhere all the time. Yes. But there is a difference between that reality and what He's talking about here of not being present among them. You see, there's a difference between knowing there is a God, knowing He's there, and having Him dwell with you. There's a huge difference. Romans 1 tells us the whole world, even those who try to deny His existence, know that there is a God because He has been written in the entire created order. But you can know there is a God, but not worship Him, as many do. You can know there is a God, and acknowledging there is a God, or refusing to acknowledge outwardly there is a God, but inwardly knowing is not a relationship with God. See, there's a difference in the reality of God's presence and what's being talked about here that we could call His glory presence. His intimate relational presence. God was always around even before He committed Himself to the people in the sense of delivering them and telling them, make a house for Me and I will dwell among you. It is the glory presence of here that God says will not be among you. 
Look at verses 4 through 6. Now, let me stop here and say this. that you know, These people have enough uh, understanding of what's going on and the way God has already disciplined them to know this is not a good deal. <laughs> Here's what's sad, that we often think it is a good deal. We think, if I could just have the gifts of God, without having to deal with everything in my life being about God. In other words, my life would be better if I could just give the gifts of God, but I didn't have to deal with the reality of the presence of God. That's a struggle. Most of us tend to at times at least think that it is the gifts that are most important look with me beginning at verse 4 when the people heard this disastrous word they mourned and no one put on his ornaments now the ornaments was a reference to jewelry or the 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 gold jewelry particularly for the making of the golden calf that was left over after the contribution you see, they, they took it from the Egyptians. It was to be used to make the tabernacle. They use it to make a golden calf. This is some that is left over. And it says that they, 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 no one put this stuff on anymore. Verse 5, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Oreb onward. Now you've got to know something about that word there. They stripped themselves of their ornaments. It's the same word used for the fact that they plundered the Egyptians. When they were leaving, it's the same word uh, that's translate that's that's used in the New Testament for because of Christ's victory over Satan on the cross and the resurrection, we plunder the strong man in his own house. Here, what is Israel saying? They plunder themselves. It's saying here that, that Israel plundered themselves of the ornaments of Mount Oreb onward. Israel deserved to be plundered just as much as the Egyptians. When we take the gifts over the giver, we have the same battle. You see, they could have said, look, listen, this is what God did. God gave us this stuff. God is the one who brought us here, and we're here now. And look, we know we're somebody because of all this, this stuff we've had. Yeah, tabernacle, but that guy's gone. Golden calf, this is our stuff to do with what we want. This is how we know we're somebody. But now at this point, when God says, uh, uh, I... He has dealt with their rebellion and says, I will not go with you. Now, they have a, a, a spiritual conviction enough to say, get rid of that stuff. See, our fundamental sin is thinking we would be fine with the gifts of God without the relational presence of God. From the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, God says, listen, you can have all of this except for this one tree over here. And they think, you know, Look at this. this uh, I, but I, I need that tree. Uh, when, when we think that what we need is the stuff of the world that God has made more than God, then we're always on a dangerous path. You see, an understanding of prosperity that tips its cap, cap to God 
but thinks it's fine without God being with us is dangerous and even potentially damning. Without God being with us, does that not make your mind hearken to later in the Bible? There is one who comes and his name is Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of God with us. Bringing the glory of God. We need the presence of God. The gifts of God are reflections of the character and presence of God. And the reflection cannot be more important than the reality. He goes on in verses 7-16 through 16 to say what we really need. First thing that we really need is His presence. Look with me beginning in verse 7 and we'll move through this quickly. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. Now, same, same language here, but this is not the tabernacle. This is pitched outside the camp. He goes on to say far off from the camp. This is a, a, a break in the relationship. And it says here, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. So here in this one verse, three times, this is outside the camp. Not the tabernacle, but Moses responds to the moment, and Moses understands that what we must have is the presence of God. Now there's a sense in which his actions are a rebuke of the people who made this golden calf to worship it, And he says, listen, you guys have messed up, but we need the presence of God. So he goes outside the camp and he pitches this tent and he says, this is where you'll have to come to meet with God outside of Israel, even though you were the one who were given the promises. But but notice as it continues, verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses till he'd gone in the tent. Now, if you'll remember chapter 32, verse 1, when they're, they're trashing Moses, they say, this, Moses. And now what are they doing? They're standing up when he walks in it. There's a sense of respect and affection and contrition on their part. And by the way, let me say a word to anybody who leads anything. Let this be a word to you. Leading means doing what's right. And doing what's right oftentimes doesn't prove itself until over time. It's not immediate. And so anybody leading anything, a parent with your child you with a group of people, you in a small group, you at work, you doing the right thing always has to have a long view in mind. And it's always the right thing to do the right thing. That's what it means to lead. Moses leads when the people are jeering him, rejecting him, and making a golden calf, and he is leading now in this instance as well. Verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. 
And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Now this presence of this tent that Moses has pitched outside the camp becomes to be known as the place of the symbolic presence of God, the doorway. Verse 11, And the Lord used to speak to Moses, get this, face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, the commander in the army, a young man, would not depart from the tent. That's right, this tent has to be guarded because there's no telling what this people who have already proven that they'll form a golden calf might do to defile this place, so it is to be guarded. But did you see that? Moses, God speaks to him face to face. Look at verse 12 and 13. Moses said to the Lord, See, this is an attention-getting strong word. It's an exclamation, strong language in reference to God. Moses is urgent and passionate here. See, you say to me, bring up this people, reiterating God's language, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. You have also found favor in my sight. The yous there are singular, referring to Moses. Verse 13, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Or it could be translated, I pray now show me your ways. That, here's the purpose, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. If I found favor in your sight, show me your ways so I can see you more clearly, so I can know and experience the fact I found favor or grace or mercy in your sight. And then he says this, consider too that this nation is your people. Now notice this, he's not forgetting his role here. In his righteous indignation against the rebellion of the people for making the golden calf, Moses here is functioning as the mediator of the people. He's praying for them. He's interceding on their behalf. He's doing what God called him to do. This is Moses at his finest and the very reality that god allows this tent to be pitched outside of the camp is an act of mercy on the part of god he is not among them but he still makes his presence known moses here the one who prays for his people who intercedes on their behalf then look at chapter 33 verse 14 And he said, my presence, literally my face, my presence will go with you, singular, only talking to Moses. And I will give you rest, singular, only talking to Moses. God says, okay, my presence, my face will go with you and you alone. My rest that I give will be yours and yours alone. The Lord speaks to Moses here alone. In fact, he's being treated here as if he alone is Israel. He is the only one in this instance who has been faithful. By the way, that sort of substitution pattern, mediator pattern, is going to show up again. You see, the one who was born as the Messiah is the faithful Israelite. He is the one in whom the promises of God are yes and amen. 
He himself is Israel. And by faith in him, you can be adopted into that family, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, and be a part of the family of God. But the Bible keeps teaching this substitution, mediator pattern throughout, preparing us for the coming of Christ. Moses here is spoken of as singular. But notice the way Moses responds in verses 15 and 16. And he said to him, that is, Moses said to Yahweh, or I am, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Do you hear that? That's the point of what's going on here. If your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here. But but the Lord just said His presence, His face will go with you, Moses. But that's not what the Lord called me to do, only be concerned about me. To glorify God, Moses has to say here, O Lord, be among us. And by the way, what Moses is essentially saying here is it would be better off for us to all die in this desert than to move one step without your presence among us. That's what he's saying. They have no hope. They're, they're enemies all around. Without the promise of God, they, they wouldn't have gotten out of Egypt. They, they certainly wouldn't have crossed that sea. They would have been a bloody shore on the other side. He's saying it would be better, God, for us to die in this instant than to move anywhere without your presence among us. Don't tell me, Lord, just simply that you'll get us there and you will make us successful because that is meaningless apart from your presence. It's your presence that makes the promised land the place of rest, not inherently the land itself. It's your presence that makes all of these things yes and amen, not the things in and of themselves. Look at what Moses says in verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and your people, I and your people, is it not in go, your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It, it, Moses says here, How will it be known that I found favor in your sight, as the mediator you've raised me up to be, and that I and your people have found favor in your sight, unless you go up with us? Is that not the one thing that separates us from everybody else? That makes us, even a group of sinners, be rightly be able to call a holy people? Is that not the one thing? It's not our diet. It's not the things that we do. It's not the things that we wear. As all kinds of legalistic religions have gotten wrong down through the ages. The one thing that makes us unique is that you, God, are with us. And in New Testament language, if you are with us, who can be against us. That's it. It's all that matters. The gifts without your presence are a curse, not a blessing. 
all kinds of people in the world achieve all kinds of things apart from Christ. But those very gifts will not meet the burden of bringing contentment, joy, salvation, deliverance to one's life. Moses associates his future with that of the people, Israel. This is about us, Lord. This is about I and your people. Your presence is the only thing that makes us unique. Your presence is the only thing that makes us holy in the world. This is it. This is what has been going on. This is, God, what you have been doing. And I want the world to know what you have done. Now, it is right for Moses to speak back the promises of God to God. That's what God made him a mediator to do. Now, the second thing that we really need is his mercy. His presence and his mercy. Oh, you see, their guilt is so clear it's ever before them. Pick up at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken. In other words, you will go up with us, not just me. This very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God says, okay, my glory presence will be with them on the basis of the plea of the mediator that is before me. On the basis of your plea, your intercession, I will grant my glory presence. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Your glory means weight. It means heavy. It means light. It means substance. Show me your glory. Show me your your heaviness on everything. We use that word like that. We say, I have a heavy burden, right? It's weighing down on me. A heavy burden makes it hard for us to, to see other things because it is, starts to consume us. That's what it, a heaviness, a, a heaviness of his glory where you don't forget him. He weighs on you, but it's also light. You see clearly in light of seeing Him for who He is. And it's also substance, the the reality of who He is, what He's promised, and what He does. But notice verse 18 and 19. Please show me your glory is Moses' prayer. And by the way, make that your prayer. Essentially, Moses is saying, I want you. We want you, Lord. That's what we must have. Pray that. Pray, Lord, show me your glory. Pray, Lord, show Ashlyn your glory. Lord, show us as a, as a people your glory. Use us to do that. Lord, may the nations see your glory. But notice what he says in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you in my name the Lord, that is Yahweh, I am, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So, show me your glory. Okay, I'll show you my goodness. So the goodness of God and the glory of God are two sides of the same coin. We are to see His glory... And understand that in seeing His glory, we will see His goodness, His mercy. And He gives a 
formulaic statement of that here that basically means I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy basically means I will act in my free and sovereign grace. You see, at the end of the day, this is going to be about me, my promises, my grace, my mercy to guilty sinners. All of these events are training this people that any hope in themselves is ultimately foolish. Their hope has to be in God and the gospel. That's where good news comes from, not from themselves. And it's to teach us the same thing. Here is our only hope, the grace of God, the mercy of God. Notice verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And if you've been paying attention, you're like, huh? What about 3311? In 3311, it says, I speak to Moses face to face. In Verse 20, it says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. By the way, the end of verse 33, 11 says this. As a man speaks to his friend. Directly. You see, the issue here is that this face to face language is an idiom. And the face language is not. It's used for Presence, in other words, unmediated presence, are, are at least more than just simply the direct speech of face to face. Numbers 12, verses 6 through 8 help clear it up. Listen to this. The Lord said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak with him in a dream. My servant Moses is not like this. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face. Our Christian Standard Bible translates it directly, openly, not in riddles. This is about speaking. This face to face is an idiom, meaning God speaks directly to you. God spoke directly to Moses. That doesn't mean he saw his face in the sense of looking directly at the unmediated presence of God. It means he spoke to him in his very presence and he did it directly. There's a distinction between the idiom and the reality here. Notice as it continues in verse 21. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. If you say, well, why can't you see the face? It's easy. God is holy, holy, holy. We are guilty sinners. We would grab the ground in His presence because of the reality of our sin. We cannot stand in the presence of His holiness until He has dealt with sin fully, finally, and forever. But God gives glimpses of His glory. And here He says, Moses, you will see my back. Why all this language about God passing by? Why is this important right now? Well, that's chapter 34. Chapter 34 is a renewal of the covenant. 
after the rebellion. Moses goes back up. The tablets are given again with the Ten Commandments on them. The covenant stipulations are given again. And all of the process is repeated. Passing by is a language for the making of covenant in the Bible. You pass by to say that you are entering into this covenant relationship, kind of like we would say you come and sign these documents. You pass by, but this is way more weighty than that, and you take on the demands of the covenant. This is God's incredible mercy and grace to this people on the other side of their rebellion and God pointing them to the fact that they needed a mediator to get to this point. As we think about this text and how we are sorted out in our own lives, I, I, my mind could not get away from that C.S. Lewis quote from The Weight of Glory. That famous quote where he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. You think about this people and what they had seen And yet they are so quick to melt down that gold and make a calf. Somehow, somehow, oh, that's enough. That'll do. You see, that's our great problem. Our great problem is that we settle for gifts. And we so often neglect the giver. We are often, so often, too easily pleased. You know, John 1, 14-18 is actually a commentary on this section and the way Jesus comes and fulfills it. John 1, 14-18, And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. Do you see the connection here between glory and grace or glory and mercy? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And in Jesus, as he takes on human flesh, we don't have the unmediated presence of God, but we have a vision of the glory of God in a way that is greater than had ever been known before. We see his face, but we don't see his face completely unmediated. That is yet to come. Understand this, without Jesus, you can have a religious system, but what you cannot have is glory and mercy. A religious system of things that you do to earn your way to the so-called God, it's a religious system, but it's not glory and mercy. A way where you say, you know, just the God that I'm I've come up with, just lets me do whatever I want to do. You can do that, but 
you will never have glory and mercy. Those are only found in Jesus Christ. And we can only be united to Him because He tabernacled with us. The presence of God. The mercy of God. This is what we need. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 talks about a day coming. And he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We do not know now fully, but God fully knows us. And in Christ, He loves us. Can there be anything better than to be fully known and fully loved? Passage I read at the end of chapter 34, verse 35, where the covenant is renewed. It says that Moses' face was shining and he came out and the people saw it. They saw what? They saw the glory of God on the face of Moses. And that made much of God's glory. That magnified the Lord. There's a sense in which that is the way we are to live our lives. We're to live our lives in the presence of God. Totally consumed with the mercy of God. And in that way, we reflect to this world the glory of God and to one another. I've got news for you. If God gave you all kinds of success and gave you your heart's desire, but He was not with you, at the end, you would not call that a blessing. You would call that a curse. But I've got good news. In Jesus Christ, we have Emmanuel, God with us. And He is the one who brings us grace and truth. And He is the one in whom we know the mercy of God. He is our prophet and our mediator and our priest and our king and our altar and our sacrifice. The mercy of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the opportunity to open Your Word today. Thank you for the chance to magnify Christ and those who have been thinking about this theme all weekend, I pray, Lord, would, would respond to the reality of, of who you are. And Lord, I pray that right now for all who are here today, that, that if, if we know by the work of the Spirit of God that we have really been fixated on the gifts of God rather than God, that this day would be a day of repentance. Oh, Lord, make it so. Make them willing to speak that truth to someone else. And most importantly to you, O oh God. For you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Lord, for those here who are apart from Christ, who've never thrown themselves on the mercy of Christ, maybe have dabbled in thinking about Christ, maybe want Him but at a distance, may this be the day of repentance. May this may be the day of salvation. Oh Lord, help us to respond 
to what you would have us to do. In Christ's name, amen.